Last night when the choir was practicing that song, um, the Lord placed it on my heart to change what I was going to talk about tonight. I had something else planned, but um, I'd love for us to just take our Bibles for a couple minutes tonight and turn to Luke chapter 23. Very important and interesting concept from Scripture. As I said earlier, our focus tonight is completely on Christ. Kids, you're dismissed. Is that right? Kids, you're dismissed. Our focus tonight is completely on Christ, on His death specifically tonight, which we believe and we've already celebrated and commemorated was absolutely essential for salvation. The work of grace, the work of redemption, the work of forgiveness could not be accomplished without Christ taking our sins and dying. So it's awful to think about, and it's humbling to think about, sobering to think about, but we praise the Lord tonight that this is not the end, that Sunday we get to gather and we get to celebrate the resurrection. Because if it stops at the cross, we're all hopeless. But because it ends with the resurrection, sin and death are defeated forever, and sin and death can be removed from our lives and we trust in Christ. Jesus took those sins on himself. He was the substitutionary sacrifice. He was the lamb that took our sins and, and took them to the cross. So we can be forgiven. So we can be exonerated. But what I'd like to make clear tonight and what we know and we just want to remember it again is that Jesus did not deserve that punishment. We did. We just need to say that again. We need to be reminded of it again. Jesus did not deserve the cross. We did. He didn't have to die. He wasn't forced to die. There was nothing that compelled him to die. It was completely a voluntarily, voluntary loving act. God was not obligated to redeem us. God was not obligated to come and rescue us from sin. Now, before Jesus went to the cross, he essentially uh, was put on trial five different times. And the text, and you can read it later tonight, uh, throughout the span of about 18 hours, he was, he was challenged, he was charged five different times. The first time was when he was brought before the Sanhedrin. It's earlier in chapter uh, 22. He was brought before the Sanhedrin, which was the council of priests and kind of the judicial rulers, kind of a religious supreme court. And he was accused and charged, and there were all kind of false witnesses and trumped up charges. Matthew, the passage, and Matthew tells us that, that there was witness after witness who basically didn't know what they were talking about, but they, they wanted to try to make anything stick, even though there was no basis in fact for a charge. And when that didn't work, then they sent him to Pilate. Pilate was essentially the Roman governor over the area, and, and they took him to Pilate, and Pilate said, I find nothing wrong with this guy. There's no evidence of guilt whatsoever. So he sent him to Herod. Herod was the king of Israel at the time. And Herod was very intrigued by Jesus. Uh, if there was anybody that would have had a reason to find fault in Jesus, it was Herod because his dad, Herod the Great, was the one who had killed all the babies under two in Luke chapter two because he wanted to try to root out this one that the wise men had said, whereas he was born the king of the Jews. So Herod had an interest, but Herod was intrigued. He wanted to hear Jesus answer some questions. He even wanted to see him maybe do a miracle just to kind of prove himself. But when Jesus went to Herod, he didn't say a word. And after a while of being frustrated, Herod sent him back to Pilate. 
trial number two. And Pilate looks at him. All he gathers, all the chief priests and the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the high priests and all the people. He gets everybody together and says, look, I, I've examined this guy. I've talked to him twice. I can't find anything wrong with him. There is no guilt in him whatsoever. And, and I, I need to release him to you. And the people said, no, we don't want him. Crucify him. And Pilate's dumbfounded to the point that he says, well, I'm going to wash my hands of this. I'm not the one who's guilty. And they're crying, yeah, put his blood on our hands. So Pilate says, well, I, I can release a prisoner instead of him. So they say, well, give us the murderer of Barabbas. That was the fifth trial, the court of public opinion. The same crowd that we talked about Sunday that was shouting, Hosanna, save us on Sunday. But by Friday was shouting, crucify him. You know you can't trust the crowd, right? The crowd's fickle. So Jesus is put on trial five different times, and throughout all of this, there is not one single bit of evidence of his guilt. Look at it, chapter 23, verses 13 to 15. Look at what it says. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion, and behold, having examined him before you, I found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor is Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. The Roman ruler couldn't find any problem. The Jewish king couldn't find any problem. The Sanhedrin, who really wanted to find a problem, couldn't find a problem. Pilate, second time, couldn't find a problem. And finally, the people say to, to Pilate, we don't care if there's a problem, we just want him dead. But there was never a moment where it was uncovered, where there was something hidden, where there was some crime, where there was some offense that was done that had broken the law, where, where, where Christ, where they said, he's guilty, here it is, here's the evidence, here's the proof, we can hold it up against the law, and, and he has sinned, and, and therefore he can't be who he said he was, because he said that he's the son of God to take away the sins of the world. He can't be that because of this. There was never a point where they could find that. So there was no guilt whatsoever. They had tried for three years. Whether they were jealous of the attention that he got or they were uh, concerned that their own hypocrisy and their own sin was going to be exposed by him or whether they just uh, really didn't understand him or they feared his authority as, as God in flesh. Whatever the case may be, it doesn't matter what the motive was. What matters is that they didn't find one thing wrong. They wanted so badly to invalidate him, but it wasn't going to happen. Jesus was clean. He was perfect. He was holy. He was righteous. He had fulfilled the law to the letter. Now that's crucial for us to understand just in our short time of study tonight because it is essential. It is absolutely essential that Jesus is perfect if he's going to be the Savior. Somebody who's stained by guilt, somebody who's stained by sin, can't be the perfect sacrifice. See, all the way back in Exodus 12, they had to find a spotless lamb. They couldn't have a lamb that had a, a lame leg or a lamb, that had, a lamb that had spots on it or a lamb that couldn't see or, or whatever the case may be. It had to be without blemish. And that was a picture all the way ahead to what Jesus was going to be. Jesus couldn't come to the cross and say, I'm going to take away your sins, Paul Rhodes, if he's filled with sin himself. He had to be pure and he had to be holy. Now, Jesus is clean, but on the other side is us. And the problem with us is we're filled with guilt. 
Every one of us, every person who's ever lived, we're all sinful. None of us can claim that we're perfect. None of us can claim that we're clean. None of us can claim that we're holy and righteous and innocent of any wrongdoing on our own. We can't claim that. We're all guilty. We're all condemned by our sin. And because of that, we are all going to face a judicial trial at the end. It's very real. It hasn't happened yet because we haven't died yet. But we are all going to face it and we're all going to go through it. The Bible says that one day every one of us will stand before God and we'll have to give an account of our life, what we believed, what we did, uh, whether we trusted in Christ. And the reality of that moment is that every single one of us, as we stand before God, is not going to be able to say, on my own, God, I'm innocent. On my own, God, I am pure. On my own, you have no charge against me because I have lived perfectly. There's not one of us that could say that. So now there's a problem. There's God's holiness and there's our sin. And God, in his righteous perfection, can't accept anything less than righteous perfection because it would be incompatible with his character. He can't abide in holiness and take unholiness with him. He has to have only what is holy in his presence. And that's a significant problem because you and I are far from holy. No offense. I'm sorry tonight. You didn't come to get told that, but that's the truth. I'll just put it on myself. I am far from holy. I am far from righteous. I don't have good in me on my own. So when there's a trial, and when I have to account for what I, 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 I face, unlike Christ who faced trial, I am guilty. And there's an abundance of evidence to that fact. Any family member, any friend, anybody who, who knows us, if they were under oath tonight on a trial of our life, would have to attest to the fact, as hard as it would be because they love us, they would have to attest to the fact that there are thousands of examples of us doing wrong. My wife, my kids, my mom and dad, my brother and sister, my in-laws, my cousins, my nieces and nephews, all my relatives, you, if, you were, if I was on trial tonight and the judge was sitting here and you had to give witness, there's no way that you could say, hey, Rhodes is clean. You would say, oh, yeah. We're under oath. We don't really want to have to say it, but yeah. Yeah, there's this and 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 this. And I'd be going, shh. And then, oh, and there's that and 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 that. And then there's this and that and that and that. The list would be miles long. So anybody who knows us would attest to that. If our enemies came in, uh, people that don't like us, people that for some reason just, just don't appreciate us, they'd be glad to tell, oh, yeah, Rhodes, I got all kinds of evidence against him. Uh, things he's done wrong, words he said wrong, things that he's, that he's done that have been unfaithful and untruthful and, and unholy. I got, I got tons of evidence. And then just the legal system of our country, if we had to go on trial for the, for the things that we do that are wrong, Breaking the speed limit. I've never done that one, but just try to imagine it. 
going too fast, not reporting everything on our taxes, uh, taking something minor, whatever it is, the legal system would have plenty of evidence against us. So our family and friends would indict us, our enemies would indict us, the legal system would indict us, and we haven't even gotten to God yet. And God looks at our lives and says, yeah, I know far better than anybody else what your heart is really like. And I'm perfect, and I'm holy, and you don't meet that. Now, what do we do with that? We can dismiss it, or we can say it's not a big deal, or that we've been good enough, and we've done enough, and that God ultimately really doesn't care how we live. Or if we really want to be brash, we say, well, God doesn't have a right to judge me. God doesn't have a right to condemn me for my sin. And we can tell ourselves that, but we know it's not true. We know that's not reality. Because the fact is, we've condemned ourselves. The fact is, we've chosen to sin. And we've done this because we're spiritual creatures. We're not animals. We don't just go by instinct. We have a mind and we have a clarity in what is right and wrong. And even though it's continually being twisted and undermined in our culture, we choose to do sometimes what pleases us and what satisfies us instead of what satisfies what's right. And we can say that it doesn't matter or or that this life is all there is. But honestly, if we're just here to put in 70 or 80 years and then die and there's nothing else, what a cosmic joke. What what a ridiculous, futile exercise this is. If, If we're just for this world and then when we die, we're done. That can't be true. So we all are going to face a judicial trial about our lives when we die, and we already know how it's going to go. Let me run down what's going to happen in this trial. The charges against us are undeniably clear. We stand accused of sin. We're charged with being unholy. We're imperfect. We're culpable for offending the holiness of God, and there's no way to make it right. That's the charges. The list of witnesses is long. The list of people that will testify that to our guilt is, is highly incriminating, and we have no arguments in our defense. So because the testimony is clear and because the charges are abundant, it is very easy for the judge to reach his verdict. And the verdict is that we're guilty. There's no hope for appeal. There's no way around it. There, there's no way to, to say, well, it doesn't matter. The case is settled, the the verdict is reached, and the sentence is one thing. It's death. It's eternal death. Now, that's happy tonight, right? That's a devastating reality that all mankind is subject to. And if that was where things were left off, if, if that was it, then we are completely without hope. But there's another reality at play, and it is amazing and it is powerful. The judge himself offers a full exoneration of the sentence. He's willing to change the verdict. Because we can't save ourselves, he is willing to transfer the sentence that we are under to someone who is willing and qualified to pay for it because there's no getting around it. The penalty has to be put on somebody, and the penalty is death. Somebody has to be put to death for our crime. 
That is when we read one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture. Don't turn to it. I'll just read it. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Here's what it says. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The one who knew no sin, the one that nobody could find any fault, any guilt in, the one whose most fervent accusers stumbled over themselves trying to find a reason, trying to find some measure of fault, and couldn't. The one who was without sin took your sin and my sin upon himself. And the reason he did it was not because he was obligated and not because he felt bad for us. The reason he did it is because he loves us and he's rich in mercy. He loves us and he's rich in mercy. He doesn't desire that anyone should die an eternal death apart from his love. It grieves God to see people reject him. You know, the world's become so calloused about God, the concept of God, well, God doesn't love us. God doesn't care about us. How could he allow bad things to happen? Listen, God is not harsh or overbearing. He has to live by his holy standard. And our sin has offended his holiness and separated us from God. And there's no way that we can bridge that gap unless he intercedes. And that's what he did. He bridged the gap by sending Christ to take our place. Listen, everybody in this room tonight has their own convictions, they have their own opinions, they have their own experiences. That's, that's what makes you, that's what shapes you, that's what, that's what causes you to be in, unique. But there is one common denominator that every single one of us share. You know what it is? We love ourselves. We love ourselves a lot. If you're proud, you love yourself. If you're self-centered, you love yourself. If you're insecure, you love yourself. It is true of all of us. And that's the reason why we want to live for ourselves because we think if I can just feed that hunger to love myself, that that will make me more loved. But that's a false assumption. We don't know how to love ourselves because we're corrupt. And our sin has distorted our minds to such an extent that we don't even know what's right. See, one of the most effective tools that the devil has used to convince mankind is the thought that he, the devil, wants us to be loved and fulfilled. And the devil lies and says, I want you to be so happy and so loved and so fulfilled and the way to do that is not to trust Jesus Christ and not to yield your life to him. The way to be happy and fulfilled is to love yourself and not yield to anybody. And the reason that's a lie is that the enemy doesn't want us to love ourselves. Listen, he wants us to hate ourselves. He has absolutely no interest in you being loved or fulfilled in any way. All he cares about is your destruction. Now, how do I know that's true? How can I prove that? Well, just look at two examples. One is the state of the world tonight. Full of disease, full of conflict, full of war, full of death, full of destruction. All you got to do is watch the news for about 10 minutes and you just want to shut it off and go outside and scream. Because every day on the news, we see the awful results of man's love of self. 
And people defer that back to God and they say, well, why does God, who supposedly loves us, why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? And the answer to that is, this is not God's desire and it's not God's plan. It's a result of our actions and our selfishness and our sin. How do I know that's true? Because when God created man in his own image and he put Adam and Eve in the garden, he didn't have destruction and death and unhappiness and disease in the garden. Everything in the garden was pure because man didn't know sin yet. And he would come down and walk with them in the day and his presence would be with them and he gave them authority over the animals and he blessed them and everything was right. That was how the world was supposed to be. But what ruined that was not his holy standard. What ruined that was our rebellion. So how do we know that the world and all the mess that's going on tonight, how do we know that's a product of our sin? Well, just go back to Genesis 3 and look at what happened when man rebelled and sinned. Everything changed. The second piece of evidence, and we'll conclude, is think about the time in your life, and you may have to go back a long way or you may have to go back to this afternoon. Think about the time when you've gotten most off track morally in your life. Think about the time where you really were like, oh man, I am not living right. When you were living for yourself, when there was no care about what anybody thought, there was no sense of regard for what's right. And and at that moment, it brought you some temporary pleasure, and you thought, this is the way to go. This is the real benefit of living for myself. I have never been happier. I've had person after person in my office over the years that are in the middle of sin and look at me and lie and say, I've never been happier. And I look at them and say, right now, you're lying. You're lying. You've been happier. You cannot be fulfilled. You cannot be content. You cannot be happy in your soul when you're not living for God. And we find when we're in rebellion that that pleasure is short-lived and then we experience the consequences of our selfishness. And when you look back at that time and maybe you're even living through it right now and you see the damage that's being caused by it, you realize that the enemy's promises were fake. They were fake. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. He wants you destroyed. Now, let's finish. This is what brought Christ to the cross. He didn't have to go to the cross. We were the ones that were condemned. We were the ones that deserved the punishment. But that's what makes this day so amazing because this is the day when we celebrate the cross. Now, as I wrote that, And my notes, and I was thinking through that, I thought, what a strange thing to say. That we're celebrating the cross. We're celebrating that our Savior died an excruciating death. That that his horrific, awful, monstrous death, where his whole body was just ripped apart, where people mocked him and spit on him and beat him over the head and then killed him in the worst possible way as he was humbled before his own creation that that sinned against him. How could we possibly celebrate that? Well, we celebrate it because we know what that death did. That death provided that forgiveness from sin is offered by God. That death provided that release from the bondage of sin is offered by God. That death provided that freedom from the penalty of sin is offered by God. 
that death provided that eternal life is offered by God and that when we trust in Christ as our Savior, that that eternal life is secure and guaranteed. It is the only way, it is the only hope, and he is the only one who is able to take our place. That's what the cross represents. That's why we gather tonight to celebrate it. Because without the cross, the verdict is final and the sentence is going to be carried out. But because of Christ, the verdict is changed forever and the sentence is eliminated. It is a legal transaction. The word justification to be declared righteous was a legal word. So when God forgives us of our sin through Christ and our lives are transformed, it is a legal transaction that takes place in heaven. We're bought and purchased from sin and we are delivered forever. Praise the name of Jesus Christ. And he transfers us and adopts us and says, you are righteous. I'm declaring you righteous. I'm declaring you free from guilt. I'm declaring that you have a new life because you have trusted in Christ. Now, I don't know where you stand tonight with the Lord. I don't know some of you. I don't know whether the verdict in your life has changed, but I want you to know on this night that we remember the work of Christ, that you can be absolutely certain when you leave here tonight, that you are free from sin. That you can walk out of this place saying, all my efforts for all those years have fallen short. And all the promises that the devil made me that if I live for myself, they have all fallen short. This is why Christ came. This is why Christ took my place. He came to fulfill my sentence. And because he did that, I trust in him, and God has given me new life. You can accept that tonight and walk in freedom, or you can reject it and stay in bondage. Those are the choices.